welcome back into the Irish NFL show. We are just over one week away from the Super Bowl. We'll all be out there next week in Arizona. But before we get get on that plane and get moving, we're delighted to have Peter King back on the Irish NFL show. Peter's tour time back on the show. I think everybody decided world would recognise Peter, Football Morning in America, the great content in which he puts out on a Monday, the great content throughout NBC all week long. Peter, you're very welcome back to the Irish NFL show. Hey, I appreciate it. How do you get to Phoenix? Give me your itinerary. Where to where to where? I'm traveling Dublin to Chicago, which is eight hours, and yeah. connecting to Arizona, which is what, three and a half to four? Three, uh, three or so, yeah. yeah. Colin? I'm flying via JFK, Peter, so I have, I have a, a little bit of a layover, but I, I work in international higher ed, and there's a, a former student of mine who actually works as a journalist now uh, in New York. I'm going to catch up uh, with him for a couple of hours and then oh, head good. on my way to Phoenix. That's good. Well, you're dividing it up almost equally, so that'll be good. Peter, the last time uh, we spoke was in in Munich. We were we were fortunate to have your career <laughs> beside us in the uh, the media area. Two games yeah. coming next season, and um, you seem to really take in the as well a huge moment for the NFL. It was a fantastic occasion. It was really a lot of fun. Uh, I remember right either right before I saw you guys or right after I saw you. I spent about ten minutes with Brady that day, um, right in that little. Uh, lobby of the football building uh, or the soccer building. I I always get messed up. If I'm talking about football and I'm talking to people, you know, in Ireland or England or whatever, and I say football, do they know that I mean American football or do they think I mean the other football? So I never really know what to do. But anyway, uh, we were in that that little lobby, and I saw you guys, and then uh, I saw Brady for a little while. So, yeah, that was I was so impressed, so impressed with Munich. I thought they did a fabulous, fabulous job. I mean, uh, I I was wowed by it. In fact, I was with some NFL people Sunday morning before the game. I went to the game in Kansas City. I was with some NFL people, and I said, you know. That game in Munich was bigger and treated bigger than the AFC championship game between Burrow and Mahomes in Kansas City. And it's, I mean, it's not that Kansas City didn't do anything for that game. It was a huge game. But it just, the whole thing felt like such an incredible holiday. And, um, you know, I remember going to Odeon's plots uh, where Adolf Hitler made so many of his famous speeches. And I'm looking there, and the NFL has used it kind of to set up a mini NFL experience. 32 NFL helmets, oversized helmets, you know, in the plaza there. And I'm just thinking to myself, man, what a difference whatever, 89 years makes or however many years it was. But it was just uh, kind of a surreal experience. And that's why, look, I'm all in favor. I'm really, really bullish on the NFL playing more than four games a year in Europe. Uh, I think uh, the support is phenomenal. Uh, And 
I mean, look, I, I, I don't know all that much about venues. You know, I really don't. But, and I'm sure that, that the NFL would find some fault with places like Croke Park, for instance. But I just know this. I saw you two at Croke Park in 2017. And I feel pretty confident that there'd be 90,000 people at an NFL game in Croke Park uh, if they played one. And I think there's probably about 10 places in Europe that would draw between 70 and 90,000 uh, at stadiums that might not be exactly what the NFL would want, but would really kind of uh, spread the gospel of American football. I don't know me, Peter. I have no doubt, you know, Madrid and Paris, et cetera, would all love to. And I think uh, given the, the people that are in place now um, at the NFL, I think it will only continue to to grow uh, undoubtedly. You, you mentioned just before actually we started uh, recording this that you had just finished writing a, a piece about, uh, about Pathard, who obviously... Um, former GM with the uh, with Washington, um, sadly passed away. But a man responsible as much as anyone in terms of creating like the one of the some of the great teams. And when you think yeah. of for any watching it and the history, I'm aware of the Hogs, possibly the greatest position group that has ever existed in yeah. the NFL, and their legacy. Can you talk to us a, a little bit about his? Well, Bobby Bethard ran 21 drafts in Washington and San Diego, 10 in Washington, 11 in San Diego. Uh, he traded his first-round pick 13 times. And, I mean, he traded out of the first round 13 out of 21 times. It wasn't that he didn't like first-round picks. He liked them a lot. But he, uh, and, and he, look, he drafted Art Monk, Daryl Green, and Junior Seau in the first round, they all made the Hall of Fame. Um, so, but he basically walked a different path than every other general manager I have ever known. One day, he, first of all, he was in phenomenal physical condition. He won surfing contests up and down the Pacific Coast. He was a great surfer he would never admit it publicly but i know he liked surfing as much as he liked scouting he loved running on the morning of a giants washington game uh in the early 80s um he ran the new york city marathon back before it was really gigantic but he was tremendously physically fit and he just had a different idea he believed that once it got to the late rounds he just believed, I'm better than you at picking players. And he drafted, I, I count 16 players in the late rounds that were major significant parts of Washington winning three Super Bowls. So, look, it helps to have a coach who agrees with your philosophy. Joe Gibbs did. But for those who want to know a lot about football history, uh, you really can't write about the greatness of the last 40 or 50 years in the NFL without having a chapter on Beathard and Gibbs. 
And Peter, you've been generous enough to join us a number of times. I ask you this every time because we're talking about the one of the golden eras of Washington football. But right now, Dan Schneider remains in situ. Is is 2023 the year where he the, he he finally relinquishes control of the league, can finally move on from the Dan Schneider era? I think Dan Snyder will sell the team this year. Um, at least there's a lot of people around the NFL who believe that and people in the league office who believe it. Um, he has run that proud franchise that Beathard and Gibbs built into the ground. And it, regardless of what his peers in the NFL think of him personally, and he is not well-liked, that's not the issue. There's a bunch of owners who aren't well-liked. But Daniel Snyder is costing the NFL millions because nobody wants to go to see Washington games anymore. They're not selling out their boxes. They're not selling out their stadium. When Philadelphia and Dallas go there to play once a year, it's like an Eagles or Cowboys home game. It's just, it's, it is absolutely shameful what he's done in his quarter century running the team. And I think he'll be out by year's end. Peter, with the exception of two positions, we're nearly at the, the end of the road in terms of the new coaching carousel, the new coaching cars. Uh, I'm interested to get your take on on the on sorry on the Panthers. Just bearing in mind how successful Steve Wilkes was when he took over the team for a team that looked like they were <laughs> trying to trade away when McCaffrey went and there was there was talk of Brian Bournes, and yet they rallied and they nearly put themselves in a position to win the division. There was a kind of a, a mindset that he potentially could be kept on, but yeah, they've gone a different direction. Are you, were you surprised? Um, what do you think the future lies for, for Frank Wright going into Carolina? You know, look, David Tepper, who's the owner of this team, he's the second wealthiest owner in the NFL. Um, you know, he's worth $17 billion. And he made a couple of statements that I don't think were very smart. You know, he basically said that if Wilkes does a great job, I forget his wording, but he left open this the strong possibility that if he does a good job, he was going to get the jo the full-time job. And uh, I don't think he ever intended Steve Wilkes to get the full-time job because he was very insistent inside his organization that, uh, you know, for the last couple of years, you know, let's, let's look at, you know, offensive candidates the next time we have an opening. Let's, you know, let's look for, and I, I doubt he ever used this term, but basically let's look for the next Sean McVay, the next Kyle Shanahan. And he wanted an offensive coach. And so when, uh, when uh, Steve Wilkes took a bottomed out roster and got them to finish six and six in his 12 games as coach and got them close to the division championship, but they didn't win it. Everybody thought, well, maybe Wilkes has done enough. I didn't think there was any chance he ever was going to get the job. And so, you know, Frank Wright was the beneficiary uh, being a really smart offensive guy and having coached multiple quarterbacks to success uh, in his coaching career, starting with Phillip Rivers in San Diego. I think that uh, I think he became the logical guy. He's patient. Uh, he's a very good leader. Guys will respect him, even though I'm sure they're ticked off that Wilkes isn't the coach. He was very popular in his own locker room. But look, 
Um, this is the way teams are going these days. Teams want offensive people. You saw it in Denver. Uh, I, I mean, I think the rumor mill was, uh, was wrong in this case. I think Denver always wanted either Peyton or uh, Jim Harbaugh. You know, they wanted an offensive guy. And that's what teams mostly want these days. In in terms, I suppose, Peter, uh, like one of the the teams we're about to see in the Super Bowl is the Eagles. And obviously, Howie has done an incredible job in constructing that roster. We we all know how good the, the roster is. But do we... And, and and this kind of hats back to what you were you, we were talking about maybe in, in the past two questions. Do we underestimate the importance of the relationship that Howie has uh, with Jeffrey Laurie and Laurie's willingness to trust Howie? Uh, you know, after things went wrong after the Super Bowl and they had to move on from Doug Pedersen and they had to cut wins and at the time take a record kind of cap hit, and he trusted Howie to do that and to put it back together. Well, Jeffrey Lurie doesn't do that if he doesn't believe in it, too. Um, that's an awful lot of money to give up, um, you know, when they whacked Carson Wentz or traded Carson Wentz. I, look, uh, Howie Roseman, I think, has earned his spurs with the Eagles, even though when Chip Kelly was the coach there starting uh, 10 years ago, uh Chip Kelly wanted nothing to do with Howie Roseman. And so Howie Roseman stayed with the team because Lurie did not want to let him go. But Lurie felt like, I need to let um, Chip Kelly do what he wants to do running this team. And I only tell you that because a lot of times when you change your coaches often, as the Eagles have done, a coach comes in and says, I don't want this general manager. I don't like him. We're not on the same page. And so Howie Roseman basically was given busy work. I remember one of the things he did was he went and spent like a week in Manchester and really investigated. I forget if it was Manchester City or United, uh, but he spent four or five days with those teams, and he wanted to learn from all sports not just football. But the one thing I really like about Howie is that he's not afraid to make the tough decisions. Two years ago in the draft, two and a half years ago now, even though he knew it would really piss off Carson Wentz, who at the time was his high-paid incumbent, he picked uh, Jalen Hurts late in the second round because, A, he wanted a good backup. Uh, he wanted an athletic backup. And B, uh, he felt that, you know, as I do, I think the backup quarterback is one of the 10 most important players on the team. You saw it this past Sunday in the NFC Championship game. How much, when Brock Purdy went down, did Kyle Shanahan pine for a good quarterback to be his backup? And a good quarterback costs money. You don't just pay a minimum salary. A good quarterback you need to invest time and money in. And Howie Roseman said, we're going to do that with Jalen Hurts. And so I just, he's a smart guy. He gets it and he's not afraid of ruffling feathers along the way. Peter, just interested to get your thoughts on the Colts. There's talk this the last few days that they're going to potentially be moving to kind of a 
a third round of interviews for the for the role, yeah. kind of kind of unheard of in the NFL. I'll speculate here, but is, do you think they're holding for her because Tennessee thereafter were in the Eagles coaching staff that will be in the Super Bowl? Well, you know, I heard a couple of things last week. Uh, even though I have not seen Eric Bieniemy mentioned as a prominent candidate, and he may not be, um, I, I was told by somebody in Kansas City that Bieniemy uh, did a really good job in his interview. They wanted a second interview with him. And look, the way the Colts figure this is, you know, they're not in any rush. They don't really care when they hire their coach for a very simple reason. They rushed in whatever year it was, 2018 uh, or 2017, I forget when it was, to hire Josh McDaniels, and it didn't work out. And so uh, they ended up waiting, 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 and they got Frank Reich out of it. And Frank Reich, until Andrew Luck dropped the bombshell <laughs> and said he was retiring about six months later, uh, seven months later, whatever it was, um, they loved Frank Reich, and Frank Reich loved Andrew Luck. It was just a fluky thing. So I I just think, I think Indianapolis is going to take its time. I talked to Jimmy Ursay, I don't know, maybe two weeks ago, and <laughs> excuse me, he said to me that day, he said, there's no reason when you don't have an overwhelming favorite, why you don't take weeks to pick a coach. What's your hurry? Unless you think that all of the coordinator candidates are going to be gone, you know, and I think he's absolutely right. People rush too much to get a coach. They shouldn't do that. Um, and I think both of these, you know, honestly, the two teams left, look, Sean Payton could have had the Arizona job if he wanted it. Um, and I think he might have taken that job if Denver didn't offer him. But I think the two jobs open right now um, do want to see what the landscape looks like after the Super Bowl. I suppose one coach uh, who who's been uh, in in situ for for a while, and uh, he pulled it out of the bag again this year, is uh, magical Mike Tomlin, and uh, kind of a a lot of questions obviously going in. He no Big Ben started the the, the season, and um, the, with Trubisky ended it with Kenny Pickett, and once again he found a way to to have a, a winning season. And keep that, you know, never having a losing season streak alive. In terms of the the Steelers, Peter, you know, where where do you think they can go next next year? They still had some of the Big Ben kind of retirement money as a hit last year, with Kenny Pickett having bedded in and TJ back to um, presumably full health. What do you think they're they're capable of? Man, that's a great question. I think that uh, Kenny Pickett showed a little more than the Steelers expected this year um, in a positive way. And uh, I also think, you know, this is one of the things that you don't really, that nobody really discusses an awful lot until players truly emerge after two or three years. And, you know, 
This year, one of the best draft choices that anybody took in all of football was when the Steelers took George Pickens, the receiver from Georgia, with the 52nd overall pick. And the reason why that was such a great choice is that it allowed Pittsburgh to trade for real compensation to trade Chase Claypool. They really didn't think they were going to sign him to a second contract. He'd had some good moments, but I don't think they felt like he was a $10 million player or whatever. So to be able to trade, and I think they got a two for him, a second-round pick, uh, and also get a really good receiver, I think is going to be a better NFL receiver uh, than Pickens, uh, or than, I'm sorry, than Claypool, you know, in George Pickens, I, I think was a great deal. It's just a smart organization. And one of the reasons why I think it's so smart is that the Steelers are a continuum. And what I mean by that is that they know that their front office is going to act the same way as it has since Chuck Noll was there. Their coach is going to be an absolute flatliner, just like uh, Noll was, Bill Cower was, and now Mike Tomlin. And, you know, what surprises people is when you say, realize that Mike Tomlin has the best winning percentage of any of those three coaches. A better winning percession, uh, percentage rather than, uh, than Cower, better winning percent, percentage than Noel. And they just do things the right way. I, I am very surprised that they finished above 500. Very. I thought that would have been a simple bet before the season that they wouldn't have made it. But hats off to them. And imagine once Super Bowl's over, we'll really get into the the storyline leading into free agency and obviously the quarterback speculation. It's like a different carousel of quarterbacks every offseason now. But I suppose the one that's really kind of hotting up is Derek Carr and maybe that's because of the nature of his contract and the situation in Vegas. The Saints have been heavily linked for him today. It seems to be going around the houses on, on social. Do you think that's a good fit for Derek Carr? Do you think that's something that's realistic or it's just everybody kind of speculating right now? If I were Derek Carr, I'd definitely want to go there. Better than average offensive line. Uh, at least two good receivers led by Chris Olave, who's going to be a second-year player, the first-rounder from last year. Uh, they have a, a good defense that is growing old, but they've got at least one or two more years of good left in them. Um, and they're in a terrible division. They have a very good chance to win that division and make noise in the playoffs next year. But, you know, I'm a little hesitant right now about Derek Carr. And I'm sure that Derek Carr and his camp will push it that, hey, you know, this is, you know, Joshua Daniels and I just did not mesh, uh, all that stuff. But but let's let's be honest. You know, before this season, everybody around the NFL thought that Joshua Daniels would not be good for Derek Carr. He'd be great for Derek Carr. What happened? Why was Derek Carr's completion percentage down eight points? Why was he so lousy at the end of the season? You know, why did he throw all the interceptions at the end? And why on earth did he and the Raiders reach 
an amicable decision at the end that he was just going to disappear the last two weeks. I mean, I, I just, I don't like what happened with Derek Carr with the Raiders this year. And they're keeping it very much under wraps, you know, whose fault it was, what exactly happened. But, and, you know, it isn't that I wouldn't want him to be the quarterback of my team. All I know is that to me, Derek Carr has gone from a guy who on a given Sunday can be a top five quarterback in the NFL to have his reputation significantly tarnished right now. I just wondered on the contract situation, Peter, because the nature of the contract which he signed last offseason kind of gave all the leverage to the Raiders to essentially step away from him without such a, a massive uh, cap hit. It's, do you foresee that kind of similarity with contracts now for the likes of Geno Smith and, and Daniel Jones that the, both teams and other teams will find little loopholes in contracts to make sure they're not getting hit for the five, six years? Yeah, I think that's a great, great point. I, I think the Giants really want to keep Daniel Jones but they're not going to pay him $40 million a year for any length of time. You know, they might give him, and again, look, I have no idea what a good, uh, you know, basis for a contract is. Three years, $90 million, I don't know. I, it's, all, it's all guessing because he and Geno Smith and Derek Carr, I think, have an awful lot in common right now. You know, for one reason or another, all of them have flaws and this is Jones's first pretty good year with the Giants this was Geno Smith's first pretty good year after sitting for seven years and Derek Carr is coming off of a lousy year so what do you do with all three of them I I'll tell you this I wouldn't be breaking the bank with guaranteed money for any of them but if I were the Seahawks I'd want to keep Geno if I were the Giants I definitely want to keep Daniel Jones but if the money gets out of control, you got to say goodbye. Peter, because of the brilliance and the absolute genius of Patrick Mahomes, do we underappreciate Andy Reid? Um, well, that's a really good question. <laughs> Throughout football history, we have seen... And, and one of the reasons why I think it's just impossible when you ask a question, okay, who's responsible for the Patriots, Brady or Belichick? It's both. It's just like I can't tell you who's responsible in San Francisco, Walsh or Montana. I, I can't do it. I can't tell you who's responsible in Green Bay, Lombardi or Bart Starr. And so in Kansas City, I think it's a, it, it is the one thing that Andy Reid and also Eric B. Enemy there too, because he gets too little credit for his imagination in putting some of these things together. But Andy Reid never met uh, a fun, imaginative play that he didn't like. That to me, it's so much fun to watch Kansas City play because you know at some point, at some point, they're going to break something out that'll be fun. And I think when Andy Reid was not going deep into the playoffs, people killed him because of clock management and things like that. And, you know, I always used to think, okay, somebody makes a mistake in clock management. Uh, it, it happens all the time in the NFL. 
I don't kill a guy as a head coach in the NFL because he let too much time go off the clock or he manages timeouts poorly. Now, it'd be one thing if he did it all the time. I don't think he did. And there's so much more to coaching than there is just clock management and things like that. So I'd, I don't really think Andy Reid's underrated, nor do I think he's overrated. I think he is respected as a likely top 10 coach of all time, uh, and I think he definitely belongs in that conversation. Peter, last question for me is around the 49ers. We've seen this week that they've been very adamant at the end of season press conference that Jimmy Garoppolo will not be rem- remaining in situ. Yeah, Has the pressure kind of subsided because of the Brock Purdy uh, injury that they're not going to have this big storyline come come the offseason? I know obviously there's a time frame around when he will return from injury, but prior to that game last week, the storyline was, was already in place. Will it be Purdy next season? Will they remain with... Trey Lance has the foreseeable number one. They have they kind of fallen into position again that they can go back to the original plan, which was Trey Lance? No, I don't think they're going to do that. I think the number one quarterback on this team, unless he gets beaten out in training camp, is going to be Brock Purdy. Now, he might get beaten out, and Kyle Shanahan might say, hey, the job is up for grabs. I don't see how you forget what... Brock Purdy did. He did so much more, far and away more, in his time. Uh, you know, in his be, before the debacle of that game the other day, he had played eight games. All right, he threw sixteen touchdown passes, three interceptions, and never fumbled. In fact, he didn't fumble until Hassan Reddick strip sacked him in the championship game, and it was just you know. It's, it was a really crazy <laughs> thing at the end of the year because, look, he'll be out for six months. He won't be in most of the offseason program. Most likely he'll be lucky to be ready on day one of training camp. Brock Purdy will. I mean, you know, Bill Parcells used to always say, I can only go by what I see. And honestly, if you go by what you saw, I don't see how you don't give the job to Brock Purdy next opening day. Peter, we always enjoy talking to you. You are a legend of the the game for a reason. Uh, Football Morning in America, it comes out at a perfect time over here. comes out usually at around about 9 a.m. And usually, uh, you know, my morning coffee is kind of spent reading that. The Peter King podcast, you always have great guests. You know, you had our friend Dean Glendino on, and uh, it's always great when we see you pop up with Mike Florio as well. Just want to thank you for joining us again. You always bring stories and insights, and we look forward to uh, catching up with you again in the not-too-distant future. Sounds great, guys. Look forward to seeing you at the Super Bowl. Thank you. Fantastic.